Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, everybody. Good to have you here listening to us, to me, Jonathan, to Michael. Oh, man, every time it's reversed. We're on my left there. Uh, Dan's got it. Dan Coates in L.A. Thanks, everybody, for joining us here at Window on the West from TheWondering.com. We are still working through the Silmarillion, um, uh, and we're finally getting through to the end. Like, we've got, what, two more chapters after this, I think? And uh, we're we're on to chapter 22 of the ruin of Doriath. Uh, and l- Everything's falling apart. <laughs> Everything, or yeah, falling apart, people are dying. Greed, envy, dissembling, it's all, it's all there. Uh, the true nature of the dwarves is revealed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and the last two weeks we spent talking about Turin Turinbar and his uh, horrid life, his cursed ways, uh, it's hard to encompass everything that went wrong with him, but if it could go wrong, it seems like it did. Hmm. Bad um, luck, the bad luck Brian of Middle Earth. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So we've got <laughs> we've got some some good questions from our um, our members from our Discord chat, which of course you can get by going to theonewing.com/slash member or slash patron now i decided i think i'm gonna call everybody a member because patron seems so like you're my patron right it's like something with uh, like like i'm a king like it just seems weird so it's a we membership wouldn't want to do anything that's too that's, british no since we're, uh, we no, spend our entire yeah. show analyzing british literature well that was i don't want to do anything too caricaturishly british and that was maybe it's more austrian because i keep thinking of amadeus when i hear patron because anyway okay i digress that's horrible anyway the one ring.com slash member or members, or membership, or slash patron. You can go there for $4 a month. First month is free. Uh, and you can join us in Discord and uh, ask questions, interact with some folks. There's some deep people there. Uh, mm-hmm. See the memes. And we don't mean the dwarf. The memes. <laughs> no. Uh, and we're, go- we're going to have a little special announcement for something coming up at the end of this episode. So stick around or just scroll forward in YouTube because, you know, you don't, you don't really care. We won't know. All right. So we are going to start this week with a little bit of a, of a different approach to all that is gold, does not glitter, which is we talked last week about uh, Turin Turinbar. Oh, but first, of course. All that is gold does not glitter. We can't move forward without that stinger. That's not Of course. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, our, uh, you know, uh, uh, Turin, the talking sword, some of the craziness in there. Um, and we got a comment from Orhan in, uh, in YouTube, uh, and he gave some, some insight that I wasn't aware of because, uh, you know, there are a lot more people smarter than me, like you guys, uh, regarding some, you know, a lot of different things. And so he gave us this information. Let me read it from him. Turin Turinbaro is Turo Turikinen from the Finnish epic Kalevala. The story is nearly identi- identical. In fact, Tolkien first began by translating the story into English prose. Later, he turned the story into one of his own, The Children of Hearn, which will still retain the plot and details from the original mythological source, including the talking sword scene, which I didn't know, which explains why there's a talking sword there and really nowhere else. Hmm. It's nearly identical. This was Tolkien's favorite mythological story in the beginning source and inspiration of his legendarium. You can read more in The Story of Calero by J.R. Tolkien, which I think I have, yeah, right back there at the bottom. Um, Calero, son of... Calervo, son of Calervo, Turin, son of Hurin. There's a lot more where that came from, too. Even Huon the talking dog is the talking dog from, there, from that story. The name Huon is similar to another name in the story. It is where it all comes from. Luvatar is Ilmater, the god of the heavens in Finnish mythology, but Catholicish. So anyway, I'm, I, I mean, I haven't researched to see how much of this is true, but it sounds way too put together to actually just be somebody pulling it out of there. But uh, yeah, mm. I, I, I should take a look at the story of Calervo by J.R.R. Tolkien. I do have a copy of this. And uh, other than glancing at it, I don't think I've actually read it. Because hmm. if it's got Jared Tolkien's... I have not either. This is awesome. Yeah. Something so, new to so read. So, Talking Sword, the big reason for it, it was in the Kalevala. Blame the Finns. Mm. So <laughs> Tolkien just stole all this material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's saying. right. That's right. Yeah. Because as Pablo Picasso said, great artists copy, or sorry, no, good artists copy, great artists steal. <laughs> so... 
There you go. But nothing says art like Pablo Picasso's later works. Sorry, Picasso's <laughs> later works. I really do. <laughs> Hopefully, he said it early on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know when he did it. I'd have to find out. All right. So let's jump. It would into... be interesting thinking about that. Whether if Tolkien had ever gotten to the point where he was willing to publish the elements of the Silmarillion. Oh, yeah. If he would have gotten would, that far. would he would he have published that knowing how how basically it was a it was a pull straight from there? I still think he might have because I don't think he's shy about using mythological elements pretty boldly. Yeah, um, especially given his premise that everything that happens in the Silmarillion is prehistory. Right. And mm. I mean, it's Numenor was Atlantis. I mean, that there there's like it's pretty obvious. It's not like he was beating around the bush with any of it. Correct. Um, I think he was confident in himself and he was and he knew he was bringing in mythologies from other sources and trying to give give them a grounding that was holistic in its approach so that mm. it wasn't like pulled from here and pulled from there and was completely separate. It all tied together and we can see in how, how in of Turin Turinbar that or the, the, the yeah, right. Of, is that the title of Turin Turinbar? I don't even remember now. Is that I want to make sure. Yes, of Turin Turinbar because yes. I, the book is you called mean the, the You mean the title of the chapter? Of the chapter, yeah. Right. Of as so, long as it starts with of. So backing out to like the big picture of Tolkien making his entire mythology of Middle Earth. His idea of borrowing from these other myths was that he was he was kind of in a way giving the English their own myths. Is that the idea? Like he's he doesn't mind borrowing from the Finns or the or anybody else. It's is it, he's just now bringing it in and making it his own. He's making it English. Right. I, right. I, right. I think I think the Lord of the Rings was intended as an English epic. And the Silmarillion would just be a history. I mean, in, in the sense that um, the part of the world that Lord of the Rings takes place in has been has been referenced as um, corresponding to Northern Europe and England. And it's no accident. Mm-hmm. Tolkien even admits it in one of his letters that um, that the Shire. And it is both geographically and by by the nature of its people English, um, and so so yeah. There's there he's he is trying to give an English myth, um, but he's not shy about the fact you know English myths come from other cultures' myths, and so he mm-hmm. he has no problem borrowing from various Scandinavian country myths and other European traditions and the Greek tradition and a little bit of. Uh, Assyrian and Egyptian and yeah, it's, but to him, it's not a, it's not a bug. It's a feature, right? Right. It's part of the nature of myth and he's making a prehistory myth, which means that all the other myths would have come from this Mm. um, in, since this all existed beforehand. So everything, so Turin Turinbar in the, in the conceit of middle earth, Turin Turinbar is the source for that, uh, say the name again, Jonathan. The the name of the Finnish myth, Kalevala. The Kalevala. Yeah. So he's like, he, you guys actually stole from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's. Right. I mean, he would be tongue firmly he's in cheek at all with the. <laughs> but uh, exactly, exactly. Mm. I'm not... <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to find that quote in the letters. I'm not the I'm, thief. I'm doing You're a search for it. I can't remember uh, where it is exactly. About the Shire? Uh, no, about um, it's a myth for Britain. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, but uh, um, but yeah, we can yeah. we can All talk right. more about. Well, we have to jump into this, this the ruin of Doriath, the ruin of Doriath, where everything starts going to hell now. Mm. So, Dan, it's all on you. Dan's big thought. Oh, it's all on me. That's that's not good. <laughs> um, okay, so my. My big thought reading this chapter um, of the ruin of Doriath, you have you have two big things that happen. You have uh, Hurin kind of being let out of prison, and then you also have what happens to Thingol later on as a result. Um, and my we we always talk about online anyway, and, and maybe not we, but people online always talk about how you know Tolkien's big plot hole is why didn't they just take the eagles to Mordor? And we've talked about that and why that's not, you know, a totally valid argument. Um, but my big thought reading this chapter 
is why did if Morgoth could just unilaterally curse an entire family through no fault of their own, because we know that Hurin is a brave warrior that goes into battle and is willing to sacrifice himself for the good, and he's able to unilaterally curse his whole family and, and have everything that happened to Turin happen, mm-hmm. and, and his wife, Morwen, and his daughter... And, and as a result of what happens to their family, also bring down later on, I mean, the next chapter is called The Fall of Gondolin, I think. And also yes. The Fall of Doriath, as we find out in this chapter, or the, or the beginnings of that anyway. If he's able to just unilaterally just curse these people and, and bring about his will without fail, why doesn't he just curse all of his enemies and get it over with? It, it I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb question, but like for I, I'm wondering what the limitations are of Morgoth that he can, he's able to just unilaterally curse Hurin and his whole family, and everything that happens in their life is just completely ruined. This cursing thing really bothers you, doesn't it? it <laughs> <laughs> but, two, but, but two episodes but, now. But if he can do that, why wouldn't he just do that against everybody who opposes him and just get it over with, and he could win that way? I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb question. Not a dumb question, but a good one. I have some thoughts. Go ahead, Jonathan, if you've got anything. This is where, like, the the whole idea of a curse. A curse is not, to me, a a one-sided event. This goes back to that 70-30 where, like, Morgoth Turin or 60-40, right? And I was was more on the 50-50 end, and so... Right. you, you, you know, the Bible talks about generational curses and a generational curse doesn't mean in the sense like you are cursed for generations and generations. It means that essentially the sins of the father, they're visited on the sons because of how you raise them, right? There's this sort of perpetuity to bad decisions that happens. And Turin has a perpetuity of bad decisions all the time. Now, how much is Morgoth's doing? He certainly had, a, he has some power, some sway over the things that happen, but I don't think without, without, Turin's acceptance of and engagement with the curse in that, mm-hmm. in the sense of making bad decisions, it wouldn't have happened. So. so I would blow that up by just simply saying that the curse is put on Hurin. And from what I read of Hurin and his family, by extension, Hurin is like depicted as this brave warrior that goes into battle and he's just willing to lay his life on the line for the Noldor and very brave, very courageous, and he's captured. He's the last guy left alive of this whole battle. And mm-hmm. and Morgoth curses him and his descendants. I, I, what 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 did Hurin do to de- to deserve a curse? I guess. Interesting. So I have a, I have a different view than okay. Jonathan d- does about. I, don't know. I, I have a different view than Jonathan about the about generational sin. I think there's something more to it than that, but. Uh, this is not the forum, and we our time is our time is too short. So, so I was just shooting off the cuff, and I'm no theologian. Don't take my word for it, people. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, it's a it's a it's an interesting debate. Um, yeah. And I've talked to some folks who have intimate um, experience with such things. So mm-hmm. it's I, I have a different perspective than I used to uh, a while okay. ago about it. But but in any case, the, I get, I think that one of the interesting things uh, we can do now that we have a chapter about Hurin is we can compare how Tolkien treats Hurin after he's released from Morgoth and is free mm-hmm. to go and do as he wishes, uh, so to speak, under the curse, um, versus how his son, Turin, acts under the curse. And um, I have two answers to Jonathan's, uh, sorry, to Dan's question of why doesn't Morgoth just do this to everybody if Morgoth can just ruin everyone's lives um, in, by, by cursing. But I'm not going to get to those quite yet. I'm just going to point out that Hurin, um, even though he's the one cursed directly, there is evidence, I think, that that as Jonathan was saying, Turin himself participates and makes the curse worse by his flaws because yeah. Hurin doesn't, even though he um, has a he has a moment where he loses control of himself, rages, and in his anger, um, I don't count the killing of Meme by the way as as something unjust. I think that was Meme's just desserts, but um, but I do, but his his. Um, slandering of um thingle um mm-hmm. and, and insult to thingle was a flaw but if you compare what hurin does and how he holds himself and what he ultimately does after right. being spoken to by melian his behavior is a lot more upright mm-hmm. than 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 turin than turin's behavior 
and he doesn't display the flaws like we talked about last um, podcast, like Turin, that where Turin names himself as the wronged when he isn't the wronged, and he mm-hmm. refuses mercy when he shouldn't have, and he has all these other flaws that I think the curse plays upon to his detriment. So I do think there's a difference. And, and remember, it was it was Hurin that was cursed directly, and yet he seems less affected by the curse um, when he's given reign to act as he wishes than his son. You know, at least he doesn't he doesn't do um, he's the instrument of of the ruin of Doriath, but he's not. But it's not through some great flaw of his. Right. Um, not to the extent that it is for Turin anyway. So so there's that. So mm. that's part of it. Now, as far as the answer of why doesn't Morgoth just do this to everybody? I think there's two answers to that. First of all, we have to remember the only person Morgoth's ever cursed is somebody he had in his power directly, like physically, like he was right in front of him. So Hurin, so so this power that he has, which he clearly has a power to curse, and it clearly has some effect. Um, it 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 does seem to be needed. <laughs> the person needs to be there and in his power for it for it to to occur. So he can't just be like, "I curse you, Thingol," and then everything bad happens to Thingol. Right. Um, a B. We Unless also he has one know of those little dolls with um, needles, <laughs> the little voodoo, voodoo doll. dolls. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've spent the last ten years making this perfect replica thing. <laughs> and um, no, 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 so it's not like that. And also, most importantly, um, many times, multiple times in the Silmarillion, more, it is pointed out, and sometimes he is criticized in the pointing out that Morgoth um, expends his power through his influence of this kind. Um, in other words, to warp the orcs, to put his will in people and do ha- force them to do his will through them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the answer could be as simple as he doesn't do this very often because it expends a lot of his power and mm-hmm. he actually diminishes himself in, through the expenditure of power. It, we were told that directly, such as with, in the fight with Fingolf. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems crazy to me that um, I'm, I'm also reading Children of Hurin now because Jonathan provided that to me before he left. And Never. I made him feel bad because I'm like, this story's terrible. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, well, I better read the full thing. Um, but like it's, it's talking about um, Turin's childhood and what Hurin was like uh, as a dad. And it's before he goes off to war, before he gets captured. And you just see him being... Um, just brave and 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 you know uh, may, maybe foolhardy like maybe prideful in the sense that well we're not going to lose we're gonna we're gonna win um so like maybe that's a flaw but like you just see him as this brave noble character like he's going to go off and and fight for the good guys and win the war mm-hmm. and he gets captured and he's in captivity i don't know how many years it seems like decades 28 yeah, and then he's released, and his whole family is destroyed, and then he's used by Morgoth to set off all these chains of events. That that's right. I'm just, I'm just thinking, man, like what you know, like Horin, man. That, that it's just it's just a bad, it's a bad a bad deal of cards for him, and and I I I struggle with that because it's like, man, he's such a brave character. Why did this happen to him? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe he was predestined for that to happen. <laughs> I am so glad that you said that and not me. I saw it in your eyes, Michael. I saw it in your yeah. eyes. Uh, I mean, part of the answer to me always is this is what the author decided. Sure. And to, to ask all the questions sometimes is, is, is kind of like, you know, crying, trying to catch dust in the wind. Yeah. Um, He's just recording what happened. He's not saying why it happened. Right, right. And we don't know, like Michael said, we don't know. the Like Morgoth's power has limits, right? Mm-hmm. He was scared of Ungoliant, right? He had to, right. Be, he had to be rescued by his Balrogs. And so we don't he, know. He like, was scared to face Fingolfin. Yeah, yeah. right. He had, he had to be Good taunted point. into it. Yeah, yeah. and so... Uh, and and the only way that like Sauron was able to get control over people was to create objects that were imbued with the power that he had a better control over, uh, rather than a direct control over a person. It's it's kind of like in uh, Bruce Almighty when you, he says, "I can't make anybody love you." Right? He he, he it all, it takes so much power to turn somebody completely hundred percent into an orc, and maybe he's expended all his power. I don't know, um, but. Uh, yeah, I like your answer, Michael. I hadn't thought of that in that depth, but the whole idea that yeah. he's the only one that was in 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 Morgoth's power. I mean, I guess you could say that um, 
Mithros, right? Arm cut off. Mithros, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Mithros. I mean, so so, so he was. You know, maybe he could have. Yeah. He could have tried to curse Mithros. Maybe also men are more susceptible to curses than elves are. So, well, so that's it's possible. True. Yeah. What? Mm. Because they desire power above all else. <laughs> I don't know if that that was. I just watched the uh, extended edition of the Fellowship of the Ring with my kids, and so that was top of mind. Uh, so what, well, what I found out from reading the Cimmerillion through with you guys is that maybe Michael is more Calvinist than I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what's hilarious is 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 that we've been through multiple I mean instances now where you've been at at, at a loss as to why the dark why the dark fate um, you know it, it, of people like Turin and Hurin. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm just more callous about it. I think that that's what that yeah. bad Jonathan described, it, or maybe you described it as a, a bad hand of cards. Um, yeah. perhaps because I'm a poker player, I, I would say, yes, probably that's the case. Sometimes you <laughs> get a bad hand. It seems like the Noldor when they came to middle earth and then the humans, uh, the men came over the mountains, they should have probably like gave them like a heads up. Like, by the way, we're under a curse. Uh, <laughs> by the way, uh, Mondo's told us this wasn't going to end well. Like they should have gave him a heads up. Exactly. Well, exactly. So, well, maybe we should actually go through the story. eh? All right. Yeah. yeah. So it's divided like essentially uh, when we talked about a little, like there's a whole Hurin part of it. And we haven't even really touched on the whole Doriath part of it and what happens there. Right. And so uh, it starts off with I had forgotten because it's been a long time since I've read straight through the Silmarillion. Um, and, and it's been a long time. It's been over 10 years since I've read the Children of Hurin. I forgot that they actually brought up Hurin and Morwen. So Hurin is released. Mm-hmm. He, he's given his freedom by from from Morgoth uh, a year after. Let's see. Yeah. A year after Turin had died killed himself and says 28 years he had been captain of the Nang band and he was grown grim to look upon his hair and beard were white and long and he walked unbowed bearing a great black staff and he was girt with a sword which is interesting unbowed we're considering he was sitting in a chair for who knows how long at the the the, the pride the proud the the warrior was still within him somewhat i guess that's the way i, I read unbowed exactly and uh you know having an office a desk job has taught me that it's really hard to keep your you, yourself on about sitting all day that's but, why uh, maybe, I do a podcast maybe he had standing a, up maybe morgoth's uh, seat was a standing desk or something <laughs> oh man all right so what happens is is he 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 heads into hithlum he eventually uh right he goes by uh dimba and uh let's see he meets with thorndor i think that's the really big fix of that but first event but we have to also say that he's followed by morgoth spies the entire way even though he doesn't know it and so right everything and that's interestingly we're never see... told any we're never told any particulars we're just it's just like they're following him the whole way they hear every word that he says and he has no knowledge of them which makes you wonder what kind of spies are we talking about here but yeah. uh interesting yeah. So he goes, he sees the peaks of the Crusagrim, which are the encircling mountains around Gondolin, and he calls out to Turgon. Right well, so, first, first the eagles yeah. see him, and they come to, and we have the, the dialogue between Thorondor and Turgon, um, right. which is interesting. And uh, t- it says, Thur- um, Turgon says, Then your words bode ill, said Turgon, for they can bear but one meaning. Even Hurin Thalion has surrendered to the will of Morgoth. My heart is shut. But when Thorondor was gone, Turgon sat long in thought, and he was troubled, remembering the deeds of Hurin of Dorlomin, and he opened his heart and sent the eagles to seek for Hurin and to bring him, if they might, to Gondolin. But it was too late, and they never saw him again in light or in shadow. Okay, these these eagles that can see anything at all, they can't make out the one guy they're supposed to be looking for? Sorry. Well, the that. eagles are not, they're not crossing Middle Earth. They're, they're, they're in the mountains. So once he's left the mountains, they're not going to see him anymore. Uh, so, so Hurin, I love the line that he has, uh, and I don't know if you guys listen to, uh, um, the Silmarillion's audio podcast. I listen to that, the, each chapter, each week, week, audio podcast, audio book, uh, where he yells out to Turin as he, um, he stands on a high rock looking out towards Gondolin, or at least in the direction of Gondolin, and he cries out, Turgon, Turgon, remember the Fen of Serech, which is where the near Nath Arnodi had started, I believe, um, the, the, the battle. And, oh, Torgon, will you not hear in your hidden halls? But there was no sound save the wind and the dry grasses. Even so, they hissed in Serech at sunset. And he's turned and he walks away. Uh, but the ears that heard him, right? Morgoth. And this is where Morgoth gets the first hint of where Torgon is. So he kind of has an idea now that Torgon, the fall of Gondolin, is, is, is now birthed, essentially. This is the conception point. Bing. What I found to be funny, and this is just 
you know, silly word, word funny was it says, and Morgoth smiled for he knew now clearly in what region Turgon dwelt, though because of the eagles, no spy of him could yet come within sight of the land beyond the circling mountains. So he knew now clearly what region Turgon dwelt. And then the next page, it references Region, which looks like region. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> which is uh, very different. But uh, I got to think, you got to think that it's it's almost like a, a, a dad pun from Tolkien. He's like, he's going to, it's like, it's like Tyrion upon Tuna. Um, <laughs> you, you know, he thought of it. Yeah. And, and, he, and he left he had it to. anyway. The um, region, the region of Region. So it's at this point that he starts heading further south. He gets through the Forest of Brethel, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing this is when the men of Brethel, the House of Haleth is still there, and the people that are there, they they see him, uh, and they, uh, I'm trying to find, the Night Sentinels saw him, but they were filled with dread, for they thought they saw a ghost of some ancient battle mound that walked with darkness about it, and therefore Huon was not stayed, and at last he came to the place of the burning of Glamour, and he saw the tall stone standing near the brink of Cabot Neremarth. Um so before we get into the there there it is that he meets his wife yeah. um one last time and that, mm. good you have that picture which is ted naismith's ted. awesome it's a good one um but what i found fascinating too so, so this bears back on the eagle question of why can't the eagle see him it isn't just that he leaves the mountains but he has a darkness about him it says specifically that upon his calling out to Turgon, a darkness fell upon him and mm. then this darkness is apparently a physical thing in one sense because it would that would a explain why the eagles can't see him and b also explain why the men of Brethel are scared of him because there was a darkness about him. Yeah. So so they're they're seeing him from a distance. They're not like up. It's not like a personality darkness. Like when you talk to yeah. someone who's super dark, you're know, like, "There's a darkness about you." They're, I don't know. I, I I think it. I think I, I think he didn't stop at Hot Topic and get some goth. No makeup and stuff. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, Not that know, kind of dark. The sun went behind the mountains of shadow, and a darkness fell about him. I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's, and then next, it, the, it the, feels the, like a little bit of a stretch. I'll just leave it at that. But all right, well, that's fair. We can agree to disagree. It's fine. We always do. Uh, so yeah, so like you said, he meets he meets Morwen, and if you're on the YouTube or Rumble, you can see this uh, painting by Ted Nasmith of Hurin meeting uh, Morwen at the Tall Stone. At the near the brink of the Cabadneeramarth, which is yeah. where Turin took his sword and stabbed the belly of Glaurum. This is so sad. Huh. He's finally meeting up his, with his wife, and his wife dies in his arms at the grave of his two children. It's like th- this is what the curse of Morgoth did to him. It's terrible. Uh, the whole the the right the, the interchange between them is interesting because of uh, one sentence, one short forward sentence, when after she dies, he says, she was not conquered. Mm. And I, I, I'm curious what you guys think that means. Um, is it a, more a statement about her or a statement about him? Like, is he, is he, is he mm. saying she wasn't conquered because of Morgoth or I have been conquered? Like, I, it's, I'm trying to figure out what, what he's trying to communicate in those four words. So I'll read the whole, the whole, uh, the, the surrounding text around that. He looked down at her in the twilight, and it seemed to him that the lines of grief and cruel hardship were smoothed away. She was not conquered, he said. And he closed her eyes and sat unmoving beside her as the night drew down. So it, it just, that, that, the, the, that sentence struck me. It's like, what, what is he trying to communicate with that? If, I don't know, just bringing it up to see if you guys have any thoughts about how do we read the she was not conquered? Well, let's compare it with what Hurin knows happened on that spot already with two of his other, with his son and his daughter. So in both of their cases, they killed themselves at this spot. His daughter, well, short way off, threw herself off a, off the cliff into the waters. And his son, Turin, committed suicide with the sword, by the black sword. Mm-hmm. And if you compare the manner of death, I think that's one way in which they were, she was not conquered. So Morwen doesn't break. She doesn't become, she doesn't lose her wits. She isn't ensnared to her doom. She doesn't take her own life. She lives to the end of her days seeking for her husband and for her daughter, 
well, she knows at that point what's happened, but she 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 is not conquered. She's simply, um, yeah. I, so okay. I think so. It is a statement about her. I think so. So so by okay, I'm going to skip forward a little bit here. We can come back right back to this, but um, we find out that the story, or it is said that uh, Hurin cast himself into the sea. Do you think Hurin was conquered? Yes, I do. I was going to bring that up myself. I think that in the end, Hurin has a moment of clarity in front of Thingol after the words of Melian, because, and it specifically references Melian's power and wisdom in mm-hmm. lifting that cloud from Hurin's eyes, but then he's, he gives in. Like, so he perishes, but I don't think he perishes in a, in, in a laudable way. There's nothing praiseworthy about killing yourself. Yeah. And, and so I think of, of the, the entire family, only Morwen was not conquered. Such a patriarchy. <laughs> I just have to bring up every time somebody talks about how Tolkien was all so, about the men, and I'm like, oh yeah, the strong women, the one who wasn't so, conquered in this own family. Yeah. So, at what point do you think Hurin was conquered? Was he conquered before he was let out by Morgoth to then go and wreak all this evil and destruction that happens afterwards, or is he conquered as he realized all these things that happened, or? So I think he, I think he despairs. Here's the line. Well, let's, well, we can just jump to it and we can talk about what happens in between, but because yeah. it's more mechanical, but th- this is after he leaves the Menegroth, the thousand caves after his dialogue with Thingol and Melian. And it says, but it is said that Hurin would not live thereafter being bereft of all purpose and desire and cast himself at last into the Western sea. And so ended the mightiest of the warriors of mortal men. Hmm. So into the superlative we end, right? The mightiest of the warriors of mortal men. And Tolkien has a few superlatives in this chapter. But um, but as far as the, the reason why, he's bereft of all purpose and desire. So that's the definition of despair and hopelessness, right? You've, mm-hmm. You're bereft of all purpose. There's nothing left for you. You don't believe there's any purpose to your life. And you have no desire in the world. Yeah. And, and so not even the, the highest of and noblest of desires or purposes. And so, and so he, I do think he's conquered. Yeah. In the I end. think the point, the point at which you're conquered is the point at which you finally give in and just kill yourself. You're, that's, that's the battle is yeah. over at that point. And so with, yeah. you know, and with Turin and with Hurin, they were all conquered. Hmm. Yeah. It kind of seems like when he was in captivity, he was defiant the whole time. And then Morgoth kind of knew if I, I set him out and let him know what I've done, then he'll be conquered. Yeah. 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 I mean, Morgoth knew, knew probably had a good idea. Like he would, he would, he let him out so that he could see the destruction of his entire family. Yeah. Um, and, and interesting about that curse thing too, the mechanics of it. We, it seems unlikely that Morgoth plans every aspect. It, I, I can't see that he would know what everyone sure. is going to do and everything. He's not a puppet master. Correct. Yeah. Agreed. Um, not not over curses. He is a puppet master yeah. over his own thralls. But, yes, right. But right. not like he, but, Yeah, but he not, probably didn't plan on having Glaurung be killed. Right. And he yeah. wouldn't even have known what Hurin was going to do or what Turin was going to do in detail. He's not he doesn't know the future. Right. And and he doesn't determine that, like all the things that happened. So speaking of all the bad things that happened to Turin. One of the first bad things that happened to Turin is done at the hands of a dwarf, which is a, um, can I, do, do I dare to call it a meme for this chapter? Because <laughs> dwarves doing bad things. I think that has been ground into the dirt like Thingolfin's body. So maybe we should uh, move on. Yes. All right. So we finally see the end of the petty dwarf, last of the petty dwarves, um, who has, as we find out, has taken up residence in Nargothrond, which is the hall of the elves that was laid waste by Glaurung that Glaurung had gathered all the treasure. So there's this massive amount of treasure in there. Of course, Glaurung has been slain and we're told that nobody else came thereafter because of the, the essentially because of the dragon and, and, and the state of it, yeah. even when they knew the dragon was slain. So, but, but not meme, meme. And in, in one of the most pathetic displays, he basically is just living there by himself. He knows he's the last of his kind. He's not trying to, you know, have a family or he's not even there to be a mountain King, you know, reestablish a dwarven stronghold or something like that. He's just going to die on his mound of treasure. He's like Mm -hmm. a dwarf 
Scrooge McDuck swimming in That's his right. pool of gems. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so in my question, happy. right? So, 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 Turin goes there. He slays Meme the dwarf, and like you said, this is this is just this is just the story. You mean Hurin. Oh, sorry, Hurin. Yeah, he slays yeah. Meme the dwarf, um, and he he takes the Nalglamir. But here's my question about all this: How does Hurin know all these things about Turin? He he knew where Glaurung, what happened happened there. Is did Morgoth tell him? He knew about Meme the Dwarf, so somebody had to tell him about Meme the Dwarf. So I mean, I guess you could say they left things out or told him left things out. But he knows all these things that I was like, oh, and he knew knew that his family was with Thingol. How did he also know that? I guess well, Mormon told him, but it's yep. So it could be that. Um, but also remember, we were told a couple times in the last two chapters, last few chapters, that. Morgoth showed everything to Hurin, and Hurin saw what Morgoth really? saw um, of his fate um, and of the things he, that he had done. So let me see if I can find it as I'm looking. So he actually... Yeah, I don't... I don't honestly, see, unhappy I don't know. was the lot of Hurin. For all that Morgoth knew of the workings of his malice, Hurin knew also... But lies were mingled with the truth, and aught that was good was hidden or distorted. So this is the second. So Morgoth, so that would by then, by default. So Gla- Morgoth, Morgoth knows what. Gla- I think Morgoth has a connection but, with Glaurung. I think Morgoth knows what Glaurung sure. knows. But so, but so then that means that the, the whole the. But with Meme the Dwarf, he had to have come in contact. I don't know. I'm I, I'm just nitpicking here. Mm. Somebody had to tell him about Meme the Dwarf, and somebody had to tell him that his family went to stay with Thingol, at some point. Uh, maybe. Oh, interesting. Oh, you mean the whole d- betrayal? So, meme the dwarf betrayed the dwarf was betrayed, and orcs came and slew everyone. And they those orcs hmm. captured ah, that's a good point. Ca- captured um Turin, but then they they made it back to Angban. So they told Morgoth right. ev- okay. everything right. about good point about the betrayal. Right. Okay. So Morgoth knows about Meme the Dwarf. Right. Morgoth... I feel like this is an alleyway. I'm going to get like con- continually uh, mugged in by facts. So let's move, on. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> let's move out, of, out of this one. Is well, this it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting what Melian says to Hurin in this chapter where uh, when, when he brings the Nauglamir to Thingol and throws it at his feet and then he kind of, he's, he's just kind of cursing or, you know. Yeah. He, he, He's blaming. approaching Thingol. Yeah, he's blaming Thingol for some of these problems that he's had and for not uh, taking care of his son like he should have. And then uh, Melian finally calms him down and says, like, Morgoth hath bewitched thee, for he that seeth through Morgoth's eyes, willing or unwilling, seeth all things crooked. So it kind of seems like Morgoth was kind of filling him in while he was in captivity and, yep. and giving him a kind of twisted perspective mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah, right. So yeah, you're right, the even there, like I said, mugged by facts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting is that Melian has the power to lift the, the shadow. She has the power that nobody else has. And hearing the words of Melian, Hurin stood moveless. I love that word that Tolkien, moveless, not motionless, moveless. moveless. Mm-hmm. And he gazed long into the eyes of the queen, and here and there in Menegroth, defended still by the girdle of Melian from the darkness of the enemy, he read the truth of all that was done, and tasted at last the fullness of woe that was measured for him by Morgoth Bauglir. And he spoke no more of what was past, but stooping lifted up the Nalglamir from where it lay before the Thingol's chair and gave it to him, saying, Receive now, Lord, the necklace of the dwarves is a gift from one who has nothing and as a memorial of Hurin of Dor Lomin. For my fate, now my fate is fulfilled, and the purpose of Morgoth achieved, but I am his thrall no longer. So thanks to Melian, he is no longer under that darkness, um, and he and and he's uh, he's free, but sadly in despair still, because all, all that he loved had been taken from him, and so he the still... The one time somebody listened to Melian, they actually were like... Oh, <laughs> and then what happened? Uh... They went and killed themselves. <laughs> <laughs> sad hmm. Hmm. she conquered him uh <laughs> um yeah that, i thought that was interesting but that was that yeah that's, this is the beginning of the demise uh because as we, as we find out go ahead so the through line is the Nalglamir. so right. so so now we have this necklace of the dwarves which if we our readers remember had been has been set with uncounted stones and gems so it's this brilliant necklace and now the uh, power of the silmaril which has been working it's itself on thingol's mind kind of takes over his thought and he has it in his mind to, to get the dwarves who, who um, regular 
they regularly come to his halls and do craft there. Yeah. He gets them to recraft the Nalglamir to hold the Silmaril. And it's at this point that it, the Silmaril here reminds me most of the One Ring. Mm-hmm. Where Tolkien writes, his mind, he was minded now to bear it with him always waking and sleeping. And I'm like, oh, hmm. There's something about, like, there's a similarity that I, that like, it, it, at this point, which was real with the, with the Silmarils. I, I don't know. It certainly Tolkien was inspired to write the Lord of the Rings. And it makes me think, like, maybe the One Ring, in that sense, it took the place of what the, the you know, the Silmaril ended up being in a very weird way. Which is fascinating because, of course, the Silmaril is not crafted in evil the way the right. One Ring is. Yeah. It has the light of the two trees in it. It's, it has, it's this shining beacon of beauty and goodness. And yet, it's still a cautionary tale about what such things do to do, do to people and, and yeah. people. Yeah. Now, let me ask you guys this. Do you feel like the Silmarils would have had this effect had they not fallen under the doom of Mandos uh, uh, with the, with the Noldor? Do you think that this is more of an effect of the doom of Mandos and essentially the, the doom of the Noldor? Um, or do you think that it's, Tolkien giving a sort of general cautionary tale about items of great power like this mm. or something else that I, I haven't thought of. Uh, I don't think necessarily it's an either or uh, hmm. in the same way that a curse can be both the cursor and the cursey. Um, I think it's a, it's a greater story about lust and greed and like, cause you see everybody that touches the Silmaril ends up on evil, except for Baron and Luthien mm-hmm. because they have something greater. And I think that's, you know, to, to Tolkien, Baron and Luthien was still him and his wife, and so uh, the the greatest jewel in the world held no sway over over them because they had something even greater. But here's an interesting thing: since it happens in this chapter, we can talk about it. It had no sway over them, but it actually hastened their death. Yeah, so, because so, of brightness. Yes, right. Yes, yes. So, so there's. It's almost like there's mm-hmm. something like it wasn't meant to be in Middle Earth. And and and, and it, it, it had the fire of the two trees. It belonged in Valinor, and so when it's here, its effect on people is not going to be to their to their um, to their good most of the time, um, or at least it's going to have some unintended long-term consequences. Hmm. Speaking of which, so let's get to the actual ruin of Doriath. And I, I felt like Doriath was kind of like Rome. It just kept getting sacked throughout this. Those <laughs> barbarians yeah. come through. So the first round of barbarians is the dwarves themselves, right? Yeah, so the dwarves, they come. Sorry, I was taking a quick sip of my energy drink here because it's, <laughs> it's a long Because we, we, um, we put Jonathan to sleep. That's what yeah. we do here. <laughs> Michael, your sounds of your voice are just so... Drone, droning on and on. <laughs> yeah. No, but so the dwarves come and they he, he shows them the Nalgamir and I'm sure on the inside they're like, whoa, that is what we want. Um, and then he shows them the, the, the Silmaril and they realize like, oh, so... Mm, okay, we're not we're not going to give this back to you. We're going to pretend to make it. We're not going to give this back to you. And I think the word they use is dissembled, but they dissembled their mind and consented to the task, which was an interesting phrase because dissemble usually means, you know, you, you lie, you beat around the bush, you don't tell the exact truths. You uh, you are purposefully not being honest, right? Is that, is that the right, is that the right way of, of approaching dissemble? And so when they dissembled their mind, I'm curious if you think like that was just the state of their mind. Is that, did, did they say to themselves, we're going to lie to Thingol or that they convinced themselves, no, 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 we're going to do the right thing, even though we really want this so bad and our envy and greed and lust for it is superseding everything else, but we will, we will give it to Thingol. But so they lied to their own mind about what they would actually do sort of a small point but i thought it was an interesting way of that he yeah well assembled. it's a good question i think that they had they fully intended i it was from that sentence but you um, hate the dwarves so you would always think i that. do i do but <laughs> but i'm still going to read the sentence then the dwarves looked upon the work of their fathers and they beheld with wonder the shining jewel of fianor and they were filled with a great lust to possess them and carry them off to their far homes in the mountains and then the the sentence that you read, yeah. but they dissembled their mind and consented to the task. So I read the word dissembled there as cloaking. Yeah. Um, it, they, they just sort of hid the intent of their mind. And the intent yeah. was very clearly from the previous sentence to carry them off to their far homes 
to possess them and carry them off to their far homes in the mountains. Yeah. So they had no intention from the yeah. beginning. They weren't lying to themselves. They just yeah. had no intention of, of, of uh, giving it, ever giving it. And so they do, and um, they, they, they recraft the Nalglamir, and Thingol, like a little puppy, sits there and watches them do it. <laughs> and um, then at the end, they succeed, and he asks for it, and they won't give it to him, and he speaks with great arrogance. He calls them... Uncouth race. Yes, yes. Mm. Whose life began by the waters of, like, how do you, how do ye of uncouth race dare to demand aught of me, Eluthingo, Lord of Beleriand? Lord of Beleriand, right? That's, that's, I didn't realize that. That's, oh, that's pretty, interesting. Pretty wide. Oh, I missed uh, that. Yeah. Huh. He's claiming lordship of the entire land. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, mini Morgoth. Yeah. <laughs> Whose life mm. began by the waters of Quivian and years uncounted ere the fathers of the stunted people awoke. And standing tall and proud among them, he bade them with shameful words be gone unrequited out of Doria. So not only is he um, angry with them for not giving it the the um, Nalglamir and Silmaril to him at first, but he actually says, you're not going to get any payment for what you've done. Yeah. So yeah. not even what what for the work you, you did that I was going to pay you for. So then they slay him. So slay that him. thus dies. And, the, and And interestingly, for the last two paragraphs, Tolkien goes back to his old name. Elway Singolo, mm -hmm. King of Doria. Interesting. Um, as a contrast, Thingol calls himself Lord of Beleriand, and Tolkien calls him King of Doria. So, so there's a there's a um, I think a contrast, a deliberate contrast there mm -hmm. between the arrogance of Thingol and the reality of what he was. And um, but who alone of all the children of Iluvatar was joined with one of the Ainur? And who, and he who alone of the Forsaken Elves had seen the light of the trees of Valinor with his last sight gazed upon the Silmaril. Okay, yeah. so Thingol is now dead. Remember, Thingol is one of the original Elves. Finway, oh. Ingway, Olway, Elway were the four original Elves. And um, now two of the four are dead. Olway still alive, presumably, and so is Ingway. Uh, all right. So the dwarves. Are. So so the dwarves leave. Um, they uh, but they they are chased down. Uh, and but uh, let's see. Two of the slayers of Thingol who escaped from pursuit on these marches returned to the Blue Mountains, and they essentially they kind of lied. I mean, they really yes. did lie. And they said that uh, all the dwarves were were slain at the command of the Elven King, who would cheat them out of their reward, which was true kind of would cheat them out of their reward, but like they, all the they best were going to take it anyway. They were, they were like the, uh, the dissembling on both sides was intense. So the dwarves then go, they, they, well, Melian is sad. And then she leaves. She's like, mm, mm, I'm <laughs> now there was I'm one, gonna... one place about in that, which was interesting. And, and it actually answered a question we had long ago in an episode about the girdle of Melian because it says something in the sentence before it says that she leaves. She's it's talking about how, how unique Melian is that she has come and took the form of flesh and mm -hmm. that she actually had a, a child, um, which no Maya had, had had before this, uh, presumably and says in that form, she bore to him Luthien Tenuvial. So the, the child and in that form she gained a power over the substance of arda so she gained a power when she and by the girdle of melian was doriath defended mm -hmm. through long ages from the evils without so it's actually by her incarnation by her taking flesh and living it, a Meyer, that, that she actually gains power yeah. and is able to create the girdle too. of yeah. melian so very interesting because it tells us something i think it gives us a, a clue about what Tolkien's view is about the incarnation of that, that there is in fact power in incarnation as Morgoth has discovered, right? Morgoth has tremendous power and he's able to exert yeah. that power in the world on the, upon the world around him. Now mm -hmm. he loses because he's evil. He loses power by doing so, but he, but, but the taking of flesh does allow him, does give him greater potency in certain regards. And so, um, and it says the same about Melian. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And since mm -hmm. they are both Maiar, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. All that same, that same pattern. And so she takes the Silmaril. She tells Bablong, apparently the only one she has trust left in. It says, take him, take the Silmaril, uh, take heed to the Silmaril and send word speedily to Baron and Luthien Osirian. And she vanished out of Middle Earth. So she, right, Mablung, uh is sent out 
to uh, get, get the Silmaril to Baron and Luthien, right? Uh, yes. The Silmaril. Well, okay. no, well she yet. says he, to he, do it. Yeah, she says to do it. Go ahead. He doesn't do it. Right. So the one person she trusts. I forgot. Why is he called Mablum of the Heavy Hand? I don't remember. It refers to them. So he dies. So the dwarves come. And because the good old Melian is lifted, because Melian's gone, they're able to march straight to Doriath. So they lay waste. Yeah. They fight the elves and Menegroth in the caves. And they lose a lot of their number, but they win. The dwarves win. And they lay waste and take all the treasures of Menegroth away with them, including, including they, they the kill Mablung and they take the Nalglamir with the Silmaril in it. Yeah. And then we, we get head back, believe it or not, to Baron and Luthien, who find out about One this. One last time. Yeah. And they have a, they have a son, uh, Dior, who is married mm-hmm. to Nimloth, uh, the kinswoman of Celeborn. So in some sort of way related to Gladriel, I guess. And... Uh, is this the, the same Celeborn? There, yes. Uh, he, he changed Celeborns through, his, uh, through, through writing. Uh, no, he, uh, says, he says the Celeborn that was wedded to, to Lady Galadriel. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, okay. <laughs> what should have gone on from there. Uh, so, so Dior is like, I'm going to do something. Um, and so uh, he and Baron leave Tolgalen, uh, summon Dior to his side, and they went north with many of the green elves of Assyrian to assault the dwarves um, on their way, on their retreat from Menegroth. So I read that right, right? Returning from Menegroth with diminished hosts, the dwarves came again to Sarn Athrad. Let's see if that's here in the map. Is that in the map? Sarn Athrad, right here. See that right here? Yes, right. Um, it's the crossing of the river. So Assyrian, right, right here. This is where uh, Melian, or so, uh, Baron and Luthien are. <laughs> uh, Tolgallon, sorry. They, they go through Assyrian. Keep, keep, going, down keep there. going. There you go. Yeah, right down there. Sorry. But they had they, they, they run up there. Assyrian is where the, the green elves are, right? right? Yes, sir. Yes. So he goes up there. He gets a bunch of lemmings to follow him up into the Sarnathrad. And they assault them, and they recover the Nalglamir. They recover the Silmaril. And uh, this is when we get, right? So, so everybody is slain, including the Lord of Nagrod, right here. And, and let us not... Let, let, at least the dwarves of Belagost never actually decided to take part in it. Right. So, they actually decide against it. The dwarves of Belagost have, uh, have our respect still. Yes. Yes. I've always respected the dwarves, Michael. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no um, comment. So, so the, the, the jewel, the Nalgomir, is brought back after he cleans, the, cleans it of the blood and the waters of the river. Um, and all, I love this, all, all was finished. The treasure of Doriath was drowned in the river Askar, that one right there, uh, to the left of, uh, Ered Lewin. And from that time, the river was named a new Rathloriel, like Lothlorien, Rathloriel, golden, gold, gold wood, gold river. I'm guessing the golden bed, but Baron took the Nagelmere and returned to, to Tolgalen. So, uh, so if you're ever going to go like, like metal detecting this, that's the place right here. Well, well the here's here's the funny part is that that is actually right off the coast of Middle Earth right now. Mm. So you could actually do some uh, little if you're if you're Good a deep point. sea diver, you could you could earn yourself a lot of right there. Um, yep, there it is. So if you go to the edge of Lindon and uh, follow the old path, if you knew where the path of the river was, then uh, the ancient river that would be where you could get it. Mm-hmm. A river, a, a bed of gold. So all the gold of Menegroth is there, except the Nalglamir and the Silmaril are taken back. And then we have a really cool line and that uh, that I have lost. <laughs> We're losing our places all over mm-hmm. the This is okay. hard. Here, here it is. Uh, but Baron took the Nalglamir and returned to Tolgallen. Little did it ease the grief of Luthien to learn that the Lord of Nagrod was slain and many dwarves besides. But it is said and sung, of course it's sung, because this is Tolkien. <laughs> it is said and sung that Luthien, wearing that necklace and that immortal jewel, was the vision of greatest beauty and glory that has ever been outside the realm of Valinor. So another superlative. The greatest beauty and glory. And for a little while, the land of the dead that live, which is the land around Tolgallen, called so because of Baron and Luthien coming back from the dead, became like a vision of the land of the Valar, and no place has since been so fair, so fruitful, or so filled with light. So, basically, the Silmaril on 
and the Nalgomir on Luthien had an, an extraordinary effect upon the land itself, and the land becomes paradise essentially. Mm -hmm. That 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 little stretch of that little island, Torgallen, becomes. It's in, it. Yep. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's interesting to me that Elu or uh, Thingol wanted to make a necklace for himself, and Baron gets it and gives it to his wife. He's just like, I don't want she, this. Here fun. you go, honey. It's like the end of the story, right? She finally gets the Silmaril. It's like what? Yeah. I don't know. She's finally wearing it after all yeah. that time. Right. So, so Dior decides, I'm going to retake the kingdom. I'm going to restore Doriath since I am the uh, rightful heir. Ultimately. He is, yep. Luthien the would grandson. be the daughter. And um, the line of succession in elves right. always passes through the male. And yep. so... There's uh, he is the lord of new lord of Menegroth. Right. So he goes. He sets him up as king. All the the Sindar there are, are happy. They received him with joy. Both uh, Nimloth and Elred, Elorin and Elwing, their children, um, and he sets it up to be uh, a kingdom again. And then he finds out his parents had indeed died, and he gets the Silmaril. And then Feanor's kids find out about it. But wait, before we get to that, I just want to point out. I was I, I I have to say it because I, I read that passage. Then Dior arose, and about his neck he clasped the Nalgumir, and now he appeared as the fairest of all the children of the world of threefold race of the Yadain and of the Eldar and of the Maiar of the Blessed Realm. So Dior is actually son of Luthien is actually the most beautiful, which finally tells me what the true origin of, of the first fashion accessory of Dior ever was. <laughs> oh, man, you so really... Tolkien not only gives us the origin of all history and myth, he also gives us yeah. the origins of all the fashion industry. Okay, Dad. So... Thanks for the <laughs> joke. <laughs> Dior with the world's you first help, fashion right? accessory. Yeah. That has to be yeah. our thumbnail, man. It has to. Okay, the well, quick question about... fashion accessory That's from Dior. Idea. Let me put that in the notes. Quick question about Dior. It says he's an elf, human, and Maiar, right? Yes, sir. But isn't he born to two humans? In a way, yes. So does he have the long life of the elves? Or is he a human? I, I don't think he does, actually. Yeah? Yeah, because L Luthien is immortal. So she is mortal. So Yes, she, right, exactly. So so he, he is human in truth. Um, now, do I think that he's human the way every other human is? No, I don't. I think that there was something wondrous about Luthien even afterwards. I mean, it even says that by wearing the Silmaril. But it says um, that the Silmaril hastened their, uh, the end of Baron and Luthien for the flame of the beauty of Luthien as she wore it was too bright for mortal lands. So they're actually, both Baron and Luthien are burned, out, kind of burnt out by the light of the Silmaril um, because they're both mortal. It's better Again. to burn out bright than to fade away. <laughs> <laughs> All these things Tolkien brings into the story that we don't right. understand until we finally read. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's better, so, better to burn out than to fade away. That's right. <laughs> oh man! Where have okay, we heard so, that before? Yeah, right. Was that? Was that? Was that? Who? Who was that? I think that was a. I feel like it was Mick Jagger. That is that is a song lyric, sir. Is it? Oh, see, so yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know songs. I grew up in some like conservative Christian home. I don't know anything. Um, so anyway, um, Dior puts on the Nalgomir. He is the fairest, as we learn, of all children of Iluvatar for a while, because so, because Luthien's gone at this point. But... I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining the. Uh the queen from snow white like asking her mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all it's like this picture of a random guy who looks <laughs> with a necklace in a wood like wait what <laughs> what the hell i get to him <laughs> um, so the sons of Feanor learn about all this and they come and assault him in menegroth and so befell the second slaying of elf by elf there fell keligorm by dior's hand and they'll fare kurfin and dark Carinthir. i love how he gives just a little adjective to Carinthir. he's like no Carinthir sucked he was dark uh but dior was slain also and nimloth his wife and the cruel servants of keligorm seized his young sons and left them to starve in the forest so if you're gonna make this into a movie you're gonna have to like tackle the whole idea of like how do you how do you just show two kids dying in the forest like that um and elwing though the daughter is uh, whisked away by the people that fled along 
with the Nalgomir and the Silmaril still. But Doriath was destroyed and never rose again, and so begins the end of or this, this second strike, so to speak, of the end of all of the major kingdoms of Middle-earth. I guess second strike, right? Nargothron? Well, yeah, I guess. Dor- Doriath. Doriath. We still have Gondolin. Gondolin yeah. to go. Uh, and at least at least we got the pleasure of seeing Kurufin and Kelagorm die. Yeah, right, yeah. I wish we would have had a little bit more information about how they how they went. Like, yeah, it sh- it's such it a short battle, and yeah, they're exactly. such great characters that you know. I'm sure this. I mean, these are notes that Tolkien wrote, and he probably, if he would have wanted to, he, he if he had time, he probably would have gone like, exactly. I, I know what I want to say with that, but I just don't have time right now. I got to make sure to get all these ideas down. Um, yeah, I just want to see what wrestling move Belleg used to kill the Lord <laughs> of the Broad. Like, it, like he, I would think you know he he his the flying clothesline is his is his. Uh, his signature move, but it's not going to work against dwarves because they're too short. So, so you got to come up with something else. Maybe he piled. Yeah, oh, imagine like you know, this is the only time. Well, maybe not. I'm trying to think. In a, like you could have seen Baron in a large battle too. He mm-hmm. was never in any large battles like the Nirnaeth or any of those. Um, and so when he fights the dwarves, right? I guess it's a remnant, but it still could be a remnant of 500 dwarves or something like that. And the right. battle would have been pretty. And nice. the, and the nice dwarves are no joke. Remember, these yeah. are the ones. The dwarves of Nagrod and Belagos stood up to Glaurung, yeah, um, and yeah. turned you know in the near Nithor Nordiad. So, yeah. Yep. Well, and we've got so so let's let's close it out here because we've gone a long way on these 20 hmm. pages or whatever it ends up being. But um, we're gonna we're gonna move on next week into chapter 23 of Tour. And the fall of Gondolin. Things keep falling. The pitch clock is uh, winding down. And the final strike is coming. Uh, before we do, though, before we, we close this out, we, d- we are going to deal with some questions, too, that we got from uh, the folks on Discord, where you can get to that by going to thewondering.com slash member and uh, get, uh, get, for, get, get, get access to our Discord channel, get the extended podcast where you can hear the questions, ask the questions, uh, and interact with all of us. Uh, and also, I think, let's see, I should check my calendar somewhere. We've got uh, our, uh, we got our monthly, where is my calendar? We have our monthly uh, uh, chat coming up. Uh, I believe it's uh, next week at 8 p.m. Yeah, next, next Wednesday. I, I got I to gotta remember this here. Uh, anyway, but yeah, join us there, right? You can, you can chat with us. You can chat with us on Discord. You can chat with us in real life. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to interact and we really enjoy these questions. We're going to talk more about the dwarves and being burned by the Silmaril. How come they weren't, um, hmm. Melian and why didn't she maybe take the Silmaril to Valinor with her? What was, what was her mind in that? Could we just sort of shoot the breeze on that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So some, some interesting questions that we will address before we totally close out though. I do want to quick. If you like talking. So uh, we are going to start doing live streams, actually. And the goal is to do them once a week. I'm not going to commit to that because I have a real life. And it takes a lot to get all this stuff going. But the goal is once a week, Friday afternoons at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Um, And it's not just going to be me, Michael, and Dan. We're bringing in other folks, too. We got John from the Tolkien Road. Um... We've got uh, the Middle Earth Mixer, if you follow him on, uh, on Twitter, and he's got a podcast, too. Uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, we've got Steve Babb from Glasshammer and some other folks joining us. So every week for one or two hours, we're going to be shooting the breeze. We're going to go over, going over the latest news, talking about what's happening in the world of Tolkien, talking about some of these maybe deeper issues. Like I'd love to talk about the curses and uh, the nature of the Silmaril and things like that, that when you get smart people together, right? my goal is always to get smarter people than me. And generally, all of them are. So I like that because I learn a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm here facilitating. I'm not here being the smartest guy in the room by any stretch of any imagination. So we're going to go ahead you, and do that. It, you uh, put yourself down too much, sir. You're... <laughs> That's okay. Uh, it's easier to um, make myself look good if I tell people that I'm, I'm no good to begin with. So does that? Does that yes, Socrates, so anyway... uh, Socrates used that trick. Look at what happened to him. <laughs> oh. 
yeah. Well, I can live Speaking forever, of suicide, since that's the um, theme, apparently. Yeah, suicide, but hey, my, my writings will live forever. These live streams will go on through all eternity. No. Well, so, so Fridays, well, the first one is the goals Friday, April 28th, 3 p.m. Eastern uh, for one to two hours. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to do it as something. Here you go. Here's, here's a little preview of what we've got going. This will be the countdown to the live stream. All right, so, so nice. the 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 you know we're we're calling it for fun. Let's talk about it because it's thewondering.com, Torque T O R C. That's the handle on Twitter. We've got Torque Dailies that happen sometimes when we get to them. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna have fun. And I'm sorry if you're listening on on your podcast app if it's it was an an image of the One Ring with the words "Let's talk about it." Now around. don't tell so, them. Just don't tell them, man. Just oh, let they, okay. they, you get. You got to show up on Fridays and check us out. I can't. I can't live stream a podcast, so I have to tease. Uh, <laughs> So we're going to do that Fridays, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, and uh, and we'll go from there. So, guys, we are going to move into our extended podcast. We're going to talk about these things, and uh, we hope you join us there, thewondering.com slash member. See you later. All right. See ya. Bye, bye freeloaders. <laughs>